Have you ever needed a letter of recommendation? A letter maybe that you asked someone to write in your behalf because you're applying for a new job or perhaps applying to a school or a position and uh, it's requested by those you're applying to to have this because they're going to use recommendations as a part of the evaluation process. People do that because they want to form right judgments about the folks that are being considered. I would guess over the course of my lifetime, I've written hundreds of letters of recommendation, and I've asked people to write letters of recommendation for me as well. I recently came across a letter of recommendation that Benjamin Franklin wrote on April the 2nd, 1777. This is what it says. Sir, the bearer of this who is going to America presses me to give him a letter of recommendation, though I know nothing of him, not even his name. This may seem extraordinary, but I assure you it's not uncommon here. Sometimes, indeed, one unknown person brings me another equally unknown to recommend him. And sometimes they recommend one another. As to this gentleman, I must refer you to himself for his character and merits, with which he is certainly better acquainted than I could possibly be. I recommend him, however, to those civilities which every stranger, of whom one knows no harm, has a right to. And I request that you will do him all the good offices and show him all the favor that on further acquaintance you shall find him to deserve. <laughs> now, anybody could write a letter like that, right? You don't say anything about the person. But I'm sure that the guy who requested this letter and had this letter go into America was glad to have it. Not so much because anything specific was commended about himself, but because of the person who actually signed it. Benjamin Franklin, greatly respected on two continents, a leader in the world who was willing to put his name to a letter of recommendation, generic though it was. A typical letter of recommendation is an endorsement of sorts. It provides a testimony from the writer about the person who's being commended. It's supposed to give to the recipient of the letter a measure of confidence about the competence and the character and the qualifications of the subject of the letter. Such letters have been used by Christian churches throughout history so that when a person would go from one church to another, a letter of recommendation about this person who was a member of this church would be received by the church to which he was seeking membership. These letters from Christian churches were used even in the New Testament. Today, as we continue our study of 2 Corinthians, we're going to hear Paul refer to such letters as he continues to make his case to the church in Corinth about his own authority as an apostle. Paul speaks about letters of commendation in relationship to his own ministry to the church in that city. You may recall that the authority of the apostle Paul was under attack by some false apostles who had showed up in Corinth after he left. They themselves had received some endorsements by evidently highly regarded Jewish Christians. These so-called super apostles, which is what Paul derisively calls them in 2 Corinthians 11.5, had questioned Paul's ministry 
and they had undermined his authority as an apostle among the people in the church at Corinth. They'd caused some in the church to begin to doubt the integrity of the Apostle Paul and his usefulness as a minister of the gospel of Jesus. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians in part to refute those charges and remind the Christians of his long-standing, spiritually productive relationship with them. Our text today includes a part of Paul's effort to make this case. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, it's found on page 953. I want you to follow along as I read the apostles' words to the church at Corinth, knowing that they are inspired with God's Spirit and that they are beneficial for us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. With these words, the Apostle Paul begins to turn the tables on his critics in Corinth. Rather than presenting the church with any third-party commendation of himself as an apostle, he simply reminds the church of his long-standing relationship that he's had with them. And in doing so, what he teaches us is this, that God is the one who both produces and endorses gospel ministries. We see this in the first three verses where Paul describes a faithful ministry as being commended by its fruit. Faithful ministries commend themselves by the fruit that they produce. In the closing verses of chapter 2, Paul had described his ministry as an aroma of Christ that is always acceptable to God. That's chapter 2, verse 15. He's further distinguished himself from those who he calls mere peddlers of the word of God, shysters, hucksters, who are in it for some reason other than the honor and glory of God. He says that he and his band of preachers are men of sincerity. They have been commissioned by God to preach Christ in the sight of God. That's verse 17 of chapter 2. So now, in chapter 3, he stops to address the whole issue of whether he's trying, once again, to commend himself to them. That's verse 1. And what he says, basically, is, I don't need any external commendation. He does this by raising two rhetorical questions. Uh, the, the first question is, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, has it come to that? Are you expecting me to have to convince you about the truth? Concerning myself, do you really 
need a letter from me? Verse 1, the second part, that second question, he says, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Notice he says, as some do, most likely referring to those people he's accused of being peddlers of God's word, who are the false apostles that have come among them, perhaps showing up with recommendations from some group that had some association with the things of Christ. Paul anticipates that when this group of super apostles leaves Corinth, that they're going to ask the Corinthians for letters of recommendation to carry with them to the next place where they will go and create their mischief. So what Paul is doing in verse 1 with these rhetorical questions is really chiding the church there. He's just poking at them a little bit to cause them to stop and think, do I really need a letter of recommendation in order to get you to follow my counsel? In order to get you to follow my leadership? Now again, such letters were a part of the Greek and Roman culture in the first century. We even have examples of them in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 9, where we meet Saul, who before he was converted was known as Saul. This is the Apostle Paul that God will save and make an apostle. We learn about him, first of all, by his going to the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, asking them for letters of commendation that he can take to the synagogues of Damascus because he's on his way there to arrest Christians. And he wants this recommendation from the Jewish authorities to carry with him. We see it also in Romans chapter 16, where Paul's bringing his letter to the church at Rome to a close. And in verse 1, he commends to the church Phoebe, this woman who has been a very useful servant of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, he commends Timothy and Epaphroditus to the church at Philippi as men who risked their lives for the sake of Christ. In fact, the whole little letter toward the back of the New Testament known as 3 John is in one sense just a letter of commendation where the Apostle John is saying the men who bring you this letter need to be sent on their way in a manner that is commensurate with the gospel that we know and love. So Paul is not objecting to the concept of letters of recommendation. Rather, he's objecting to the thought that he himself should need such a letter for the Corinthians. Why? Because, as he says in verses 2 and 3, the Corinthians themselves are his letter. The fact that the church exists, the fact that there are Christians who are engaging him on this issue evidences the validity of his ministry as an apostle. Look at verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul says to the church, you're a letter written on my heart. He, he's telling us something here about his pastoral relationship with the church. They are on his heart. What God has done in bringing them to life and uniting them together and maturing them in Christ has impacted Paul so that the church is on his heart. He keeps them on his heart. Their lives are a testimony to the effectiveness of his ministry, he said, this letter written on my heart, which you are, is known. It's read by all. Now, what does he mean by that? 
Well, we can see something of what he means later in this letter because Paul evidently regularly talked about this church at Corinth. In chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 14, he says he boasted about them to Titus. He told Titus about the work of God's grace in the church at Corinth. In chapter 8, verse 24, he refers to some other preachers to whom he had boasted about the church at Corinth. In chapter 9, verse 2, he says to the Corinthians that he talked to the churches of Macedonia about them and how ready and willing they were to unite in giving an offering to relieve poverty among the Christians in Judea. These believers in Corinth were a letter that Paul had in his heart that was known by people to whom he talked. Their letter, verse 3 says, written by Christ. You show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Christ is the one who has written his commendation of Paul's ministry and he has done so by transforming the lives of these Corinthians who are now following Jesus. They've gone from godless, Christless people who didn't know God, didn't care about the true God, to being now people who do know God, who are following Jesus Christ, whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul makes this point even more graphically. Listen to the way he describes them as he addresses them in that section of that first letter. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. That's the way you used to be. That's what you were before the gospel came to you. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when Paul is addressing this issue of his apostolic authority about the validity and integrity of his ministry as a gospel minister, he's saying, have you guys just stopped and considered yourselves? Would you just stop and look in a mirror and think about who you are and how you have become the way you are? You know, it is said that the proof of a pudding is in its eating. You can tell once you taste since Paul's critics have raised doubt about the legitimacy of his apostolic ministry, about his standing as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says in response, just stop and think for a minute. Who are you? How did you get to be the way you are? Christ used Paul to reach them with the good news of salvation in Jesus. Christ is the one who saved them he did it through the work of his spirit in their hearts and minds. And he used Paul as the instrument, as the messenger to deliver this good news in the process. Or to change the analogy a bit, if the, if the Corinthians are a letter, Christ is the author, and the Holy Spirit is the means through which this author has 
written this letter changing their lives. Paul is the one who served as the secretary. The one who took down the notes in order for the message to be communicated. Paul is reminding them of how they became the way they now are. They are questioning his authority as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But do you see the irony? They're questioning it from a standpoint of being followers of Jesus. They're standing on ground they would not be on if God had not used Paul to reach them with the gospel, to train them in the gospel, to help them come to Christ and follow Christ. Jesus was the one who worked in them. But Jesus did it through Paul. If anybody wants a commendation of Paul's ministry, just look at the church he planted and pastored for 18 months. Those false prophets, false apostles who'd come among them might have human letters of recommendation, but Paul has living, breathing examples of people whose transformed lives recommend the legitimacy of his ministry. Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And here Paul is saying, you can know the legitimacy and faithfulness of a gospel ministry by the fruit that it produces as well. Brothers and sisters, if you want to evaluate a ministry that purports to be faithful to Jesus Christ, look at its fruit. See what it's producing. See what people who imbibe that ministry live like. Do they follow Jesus? Are they serious in submitting themselves to the Word of God? Are they given to repenting of sin and trusting in Christ? Or do they see Jesus as just an add-on in their lives? Jesus is someone to whom they must tip their hat occasionally in order to be respectably religious. We need to be careful in following the example and the instruction here of the Apostle Paul. If we see a ministry that purports to be a gospel ministry that is not producing fruit of godliness in people's lives, then beware. Take care. Ask several questions before you give yourself to that ministry in support or submission. A faithful gospel ministry is commended by its fruit. But not only does Paul say that in the first three verses of chapter 3, in verses 4, 5, and 6, he goes on to show that a faithful gospel ministry is empowered by God. God himself is the one who brings about the fruitfulness. What Paul has just written, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 2, all the way down to verse 3 of chapter 3, could come across as prideful. I mean, it could be interpreted as arrogant. I mean, he speaks very confidently about himself as a faithful minister of the gospel. So in verses 4 through 6, he takes the opportunity to explain the basis of his confidence. His confidence is not in himself. His confidence is in God. God's work through the gospel is what gives confidence to gospel ministers. Look at verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Paul is confident. But his confidence is through Christ. That is, it's based upon Jesus Christ. It's based upon who Jesus is. And it's based upon what Jesus has done. Christ is both the source and the content 
of Paul's gospel ministry. He's the source of it because Jesus is the one who put him in the ministry. Paul wasn't looking for a job on his way to Damascus. Jesus arrested him. The risen Christ came to him and said, I am going to make you an apostle to the Gentiles. So Jesus is the reason that he's doing what he's doing as an apostle. But Jesus then also determines the content of his ministry. The person and work of Jesus. That's what Paul preached. He said this to the Corinthians in the first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he reminds them of how he came to them initially when as an apostle traveling through the region of Achaia, he preached the gospel in Corinth. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come by proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So when I came, I had one message. It's Jesus. I came to tell you the truth about Jesus. I came to tell you how this world exists for Jesus. I came to tell you about your relationship to God is dependent upon your relationship to Jesus. So he proclaimed to them the incredible good news that God sent his son into the world to save sinners. In 1 Corinthians 1, 8, 10, 18, he says this is the word of the cross. The word of the cross is what he preached. And that word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. The message of Jesus Christ is a radical, life-changing message. When it's really believed, it becomes the center point, the reorientation point of a person's life. It's not an add-on. It's not something you do just to have a religious credential. If you're right with Jesus Christ, if you truly have Jesus Christ, then your worldview changes. Your priorities change. You start thinking differently. You begin to understand that you are here for God. And this God for whom you live has come to you and saved you through His Son. When you think rightly about Jesus, you recognize that He is the eternal Son of God who has always lived in perfect harmony with the Father and the Son as our one true God. But how He came 2,000 years ago to earth leaving heaven, leaving the benefits that were His as the eternal Son of God in order to become a man, a real man, just like you and me, flesh and blood. Not ceasing to be God, but becoming what He had not been before. That He lived a life that God requires people like you and me to live as His image bearers according to God's commandments and that Jesus never violated those commandments that we never keep. Having kept those commandments perfectly, he had no reason to suffer the consequences for lawlessness, for sin. And yet he chose to step in the place of sinners and to take the consequences of lawlessness, of breaking God's commandments upon himself. And he did that on the cross by experiencing the wrath of God against sin. And he did it as a substitute a substitute for anyone and everyone who would come to him by faith and call him Lord. That's this message that Paul preached. 
this is the source of his confidence that Jesus Christ died for sinners, having been buried as a dead man, was raised back from the dead, never to die again. So, knowing that to be true, believing that, experiencing that, makes Paul confident. And that just makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If Jesus Christ is Lord, then shouldn't those of us who know Jesus Christ be confident? If Jesus wins, then shouldn't those of us who are trusting Jesus be confident no matter what happens in the interim before He returns and brings everything to conclusion? If Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now, shouldn't we be confident? Not in ourselves, but in Christ. He's Lord. And He's revealed Himself to us and brought, him into a, brought us into a saving relationship with Him. This is why Paul says, I am confident through Christ toward God. That is, my life is oriented toward God. My life's the way it is because of God. Though God's power working through Paul's ministry makes him confident, that same power, he goes on to tell us, kept him from being arrogant. It kept him from being self-sufficient. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, God's work through the gospel delivers us from self-sufficiency. Here's an important point. Paul is confident, but he has no sense of self-sufficiency. He can't claim any power for the work that the gospel does. He doesn't have any magic in himself. He's not thinking, oh, I just know how to do this right. I say the right things. I have the right attitude. No, the power comes from the gospel, Jesus Christ. And his confidence is rooted in Christ and the power that comes from Christ, not in himself. This is an incredibly important principle as Paul articulates it at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Listen to verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Brothers and sisters, have you ever felt that you're just not up to the task that you sense God is calling you to pursue? Has God put something in your heart and mind and you think this would be a great work for Him? And then you think about yourself, yeah, but I can't, I don't, I'm not. I wonder if there's some young people here, some young men, that God has stirred up with thoughts that He would call you and put you in the ministry of the Gospel to be a pastor of His people. And yet you think, I, I can't see myself doing that. I know my tendencies. I don't talk well or I'm scared around people. And you let all of those insufficiencies that you're aware of in yourself a reason for you not to entertain that. And we pray God will raise up pastors from this church. Or, or maybe some of you that are not so young anymore and you're involved in a career, you're involved in some life's work, and yet God is stirring you up with a sense that He wants you to do something else. And you think, well, but I don't know. I can't. I don't. And you let that become the justification for not even praying about that possibility. 
Or, or maybe some of you young women or husbands, wives, singles, adults. Would God call you to go to some hard place like the Fulani people of Nigeria who don't have access to the gospel that we have so that they might hear Christ? Or some of you who are retired or near retirement, have you considered the possibility God might want you to retire in Syria, not America? I think sometimes we so quickly shut off any possibility of God calling us to do something with these immediate thoughts of, well, I don't have what it takes. I'm not sufficient in myself. It may be God's calling you to serve in some ministry in this church. And you just think, well, not for me. I can't. Maybe he's calling you to invite a co-worker or a fellow student to just read the Bible together once a week. Just get together and read through the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark. Probably for that person's first time in life. And you think, well, I'm not sure I could answer the questions that might come up. And so all the insufficiencies in yourself keep you from considering doing that good work. One of the greatest Christian missionaries of the 19th century was a man by the name of Hudson Taylor who gave himself to China. He gave his life to reach China with the gospel. He once said this, God chose me because I was weak enough God does not do his work by large committees. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses him. Can you be little enough to be used by God? You see what Paul is saying here in verse 5? No one is sufficient in our own strength for any gospel work. But our insufficiency is no disqualification. In fact, Paul will make very clear in chapter 12, our insufficiency becomes the very platform that God uses to perform his work in and through us because his power is perfected in our weakness. There was a great evangelist of the 20th century by the name of Vance Havner. Uh, you can hear some of his sermons online if you can find them or read them that have been printed up. And he gave himself to an itinerant ministry of just traveling across the United States preaching the word of God and as he was about to begin that ministry he knew that he was venturing into a work that was way beyond his own strength and so here's what he wrote about it looking back any advisor would have called it sheerest folly I felt more like quitting instead of undertaking a most demanding work which many strong men have tried and been unable to continue if ever there was a chance to prove that God's strength is made perfect in weakness and that when we are weak, we are strong, this was it. The Lord had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. Do you have weakness that God can add his strength to so you can team up to do something that God's calling you to do that when you just think about yourself, you might be fearful, saying, I can't, I don't, I'm not. God's power is perfected in our weakness, then how in the world can our weakness be any legitimate reason not to attempt to do something for the Lord? Brothers and sisters, we must see this, we must believe this, and we must start arguing against ourselves on the basis 
of this gospel logic. Our sufficiency, Paul says, comes from God. God's the one who makes us ministers of the new covenant. By referring to himself as a minister of the new covenant, Paul is making a distinction between himself and those ministers under the old covenant. Paul had alluded to this distinction back in verse 3, where he says that the Corinthians are a letter that was written by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He contrasts God's writing on stone and God's writing on human hearts. The tablets of stone are a reference to the old covenant that was ratified at Mount Sinai by Moses and the people of Israel. On that occasion, God gave the Ten Commandments. And as Exodus 31.18 says, He inscribed those commandments with His finger on tablets of stone. And when that law was read to His Old Covenant people, it was read with the understanding that this is what God requires of people who will belong to Him in covenant relationship. And the people were so overwhelmed with the majesty of God, having seen God lead them out of Egypt in great displays of power, they promised to keep that law. In Exodus 24, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But did they? No, they didn't. Of course they didn't. Because they couldn't. The standard was external to them. It was over them. It told them what was required. But it gave them no power to pursue and keep. That's why the Lord promised through the prophet Jeremiah to make a new covenant with His people. A covenant which He Himself would provide everything necessary for the salvation of His people. A covenant in which He Himself would write His laws no longer on tablets of stone, but on the very hearts of His people. A covenant where God would guarantee everything necessary for His people to live the way He calls us to live. Listen to the way that new covenant was announced hundreds of years before it was finally revealed and transacted in Jesus through the prophet Isaiah, Jeremiah, or prophet Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, this is what he says. <coughs> Excuse me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the promise of the new covenant. And that's the covenant that Jesus fulfilled when He laid down His life on the cross. 
The cross was a transaction taking place where God was doing everything necessary to bring His people into a right relationship with Himself so that we could live in this world and in the world to come as His people. On the night that He was betrayed, when Jesus took the cup at that last supper, after supper, He said to His disciples, this cup is the new covenant in My blood which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. He's saying, in a few hours... My blood's going to come from my body on a cross. And when that happens, when I say it is finished, everything God promised to do in this new covenant will be completed. There'll be nothing left to chance. Nothing left undone. Everything necessary will be secured for your salvation. The death of Jesus has accomplished the saving work of God by which He transforms our lives from the inside out. He gives us new hearts. He writes His law on our hearts. His power changes our spiritual appetites and desires. He gives us a love for Christ and a power to pursue Christ in obedience. Knowing this, Paul says, in and of myself, I am not sufficient for this ministry, but my sufficiency comes from God. God, who has made me a minister of the new covenant, the covenant which He Himself promises to take care of everything necessary to save people from sin. What this means is that God also makes us ministers, not of the letter, but as Paul goes on to say it, of the life-giving Spirit. After Jesus ascended into heaven, He poured out His Spirit on the earth with power, just as He promised to do. And now that Spirit is the one who takes everything Jesus has done and empowers the people of God to make Jesus Christ known to the world. So that people of God today, we're not dependent merely on the external revelation of what God says is right and good. But that revelation has been written on our hearts. And the Spirit of God has taken up residence in our lives so that there's no ordinary Christian in the world. Every Christian is extraordinary because every Christian is inhabited by God Himself through His Spirit. When we take the Word of God to commend it to others, to speak of others, we do so not in our own strength. We do so not left to our own devices or eloquence or understanding. We do so knowing that the Spirit who lives within us has power to open blinded eyes. Power to take the Word and make it effectual in the person's understanding that's listening to us speak. This is what Paul means when he contrasts the letter and the Spirit. You see that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's not saying that the Spirit of something or the Spirit of the Word of God is good in the details and specificity of the word of God is bad he's not saying that he's contrasting the letter which is the law written on tablets of stone with the spirit which is God himself who lives within us that gives life if all you have are the ten commandments if all you have is God's written law all you could face is death because they condemn you don't measure up but if you have the spirit who transforms your life and who reveals Christ to you who has kept that law, 
you can be in Christ no longer condemned by the law. And through the Spirit, you find life. This contrast Paul is making is between the ministry of the law, which was written in stone under the Old Covenant, and the ministry of the Spirit, by which this law is written on the hearts of all who trust Jesus in the age of the New Covenant. I want to ask you this morning before we close, do you know anything at all about this internal work of God in your life? Can you say that God has taken His law and written it on your heart? Can you say that there's an orientation in your life to not just understand what's right and what's wrong, but to see that what God says is good? It's good. It's something worth delighting in. Do you find in your life this principle at work through the ministry of the Spirit that what God says is right and anything contrary to that you're willing to admit is not right? And when you fall short of what God says, you understand that what you need is the one who's kept everything God says and you keep trusting in Christ, not in your own efforts. Or are you here today still deceived? Thinking that somehow, someway, at the end of the day, God's going to judge you on a curve. He's going to know you did the best you could. And that you're hoping that'll be good enough. Friend, if that's the way you're thinking, hear the Word of God today. There is a Savior for sinners. There is one who came and kept this law. Jesus Christ Himself is the foundation of of our right standing with God. And you need Christ. And you must come to Christ. And if you'll believe Christ, if you'll take Christ as your Lord and Savior, you bow to Christ, you can be sure that the God who has commanded you accepts you for Christ's sake. Everyone who faithfully ministers the Word of God in this era of the New Covenant, which Jesus Himself has enacted by His life his death, and His resurrection. Everyone who ministers in this era does so in the power of God. What that means is God is the one who actually produces faithful ministries. And where a God-produced, God-empowered ministry exists, you can be sure to find God's endorsement in the form of people who are becoming more and more like Jesus. Not perfect yet, but intentional, determined, desiring to be like Jesus. That's the kind of ministry that Paul had. It's the kind of ministry which all of us who know Jesus ought to aspire to have. It's the kind of ministry that each one of us and this church should seek to be involved in. Asking that God would never let us waver from this type of faithful gospel ministry let's pray together our father we thank you for revealing your son to us we thank you that you didn't leave us with simply external revelation of what you require but that you sent your son to fulfill everything you require of us we thank you that your spirit lives today that he inhabits your people and as your people, when we venture out to do something for Jesus, to do something for you according to your word, we're not going out by ourselves. 
We're not left to our own abilities and sufficiencies. I pray, O oh God, that today you would call many to be more diligently engaged in the work of spreading this good news of salvation. God, please lay it on the hearts of some who are retired and some who are planning retirement and of some who are thinking about their futures and careers. God, I pray that you would come and draw near to us in ways that would cause us to look outside of ourselves for our strength and to look to you, the God who raises the dead, and to have confidence in you and to be willing to do something for Jesus Christ in the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.